Okay, you guys, we left off uh, having covered verses 1 through 14 in three parts. And today, let's wrap up Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. And we'll read through the passages together, which are revelatory. I, I, we read through them, but I'm going to kind of stop and point some things out quickly to set the framework of what is said in these last uh, eight verses. So Paul says, wherefore I also after I. So now Paul has shifted from talking about the nation of Israel and them being predestined to himself and what his thoughts are toward his audience, which are the believers at Ephesus or different churches, we aren't sure. So wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love unto all the saints, cease not giving thanks for you making mention in my prayers. And then at verse 17 down through 19, he is talking about the believers, whoever they are. He's talking to us, perhaps, uh, saying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. And then now he's going to talk about God according to the working of his power, which he wrought. That's all about God. And then at verse 20, in Christ. And now from 20 down through 23, he talks about Christ. In Christ, when he, God, raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So these are fantastic passages where there's a kind of a system or order. I don't want to systematize it or make it formulaic, but he does follow an order here, and we're going to follow that together. So recall from the beginning of the first chapter that Paul speaks to an audience, and in so doing, we remember this, he set up a we and us, we and us, we and us in the first verses, talking about we Jews, us Jews, Paul included. And I strongly suggest that that was Paul speaking of the nation of Israel who God predestined to do certain things according to his desires to reconcile the world to himself. And these things, the predestined nation of Israel called the elect of God in those verses did accomplish. And we also note at verse 13, we noted at 13 that Paul then shifts from an audience of we, us, we, us, the Jews, to a ye, you, ye, you, meaning the Gentiles. And ye, you, referring to the Gentiles who were beneficiaries of what the predestined nation of Israel had done and to bring the two nations together. That's what this is all about, bringing the two into one. From verse 13 on, Paul appeals, his appeals to ye and you continues as he drops the we and us completely and uh, so from verse 12 on to the end of the chapter, he stops 
the uh, we and us. But interestingly, beginning in chapter two, he's going to return to the we's as if to include that whole body of Jew and Gentile now united in one. And he speaks to we and us then in chapter two, moving forward as though now we're talking about one body. So to understand that, it's important to get that down or else you won't see what predestination was meant, meant to be assigned to in those first verses. Anyway, let's go back to verse uh, 15 and 16 where he writes speaking of himself personally and says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love unto the saints. Let me just pause there real quickly. You notice faith and love. I went through my old Bible that got stolen. Uh, I went through and I took all the passages of faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. And right here is another one, faith and love. That's what it's all about. And Paul says, Listen, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love to all the saints, he does that often in the introduction to many of his epistles, your faith and your love, summarizing what it's all about for us, right? He says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So he brings himself into this discussion as the apostle and says, I have heard of your faith and love and I'm praying for you. I, as an apostle, am praying for you. These words are obviously to a specific audience and where Paul actually distinguishes himself from that audience. There's the you and there's the I. I am praying for you. This is one of the passages that is relied on by scholars who use this to prove, they say, that this was not written to the uh, church at Ephesus. They say it was a circular letter that you would fill in the blank. If the letter got to Coloss, you would write in Coloss. If it got to Ephesus, you would write in Ephesus. And because the letter was found that was put into the Bible had Ephesus in it, they said this is a letter to Ephesus. But the scholars say because he is addressing these people in this way, whom he had spent three years with, it doesn't make sense that he would say, I've heard of your faith and love as though they were strangers. I don't think it's good evidence, uh, internal evidence for uh, this not being written just to the Ephesians. Paul had been absent from Ephesus for a number of years when this epistle was written. And all he could be easily saying is, hey, I've been away, but I heard about your faith and love and I'm so pleased and I haven't stopped praying for you. And that seems to me a very reasonable uh, answer and so it doesn't to me prove that this was not written to Ephesus and was a circular epistle. Perhaps after saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus and Miletus, we covered this in Acts chapter 20, Paul had heard positive things about them and simply penned this epistle. All right, so therefore, verse 16 I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And what is Paul the apostle? specifically asking for, for them on their behalf in his prayers. This is where it gets really beautiful because he reveals so much about God's intention and what God has done. He says that, and he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation 
in the knowledge of him. That's what he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever thought of that? I have to bring it up. That our Lord Jesus Christ has a God. Well, Paul does this several times. This is one of them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he adds, may give unto you, church at Ephesus, you, Sean McCraney, reading the book today, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay? Can't help but notice that Paul describes, I have to point it out now verse by verse, the God of whom he is petitioning on their behalf, saying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, to me, this verse affirms one God. And he is the God not only of us, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes, that seems clear to me. So this passage nicely supports other passages that we're going to find in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 5 through 6, Paul says, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, that's faith on him, one baptism. I think that baptism is of the Spirit, by the way. There's just one. I don't think it means water baptism there. One God and Father of all. These are all ones he gives. Who is above all and through all and in you all. So the, the, the one is emphasized there. And it supports, you know, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where Paul says, there is to us but one God, the Father. That's how Paul says it in the Corinthians. Of whom all things and we all things and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. Now, uh, we know that God created the, everything by his spoken word. That's how uh, God created everything by the word. The word was made flesh. That's how... God has uh, created everything through his son. But when that verse says, one God, the father of whom are all things and we in him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by him, to me that's saying everything of the faith is by and through his son. It's talking about that. That's what it seems to be. It supports Peter's words in Acts 2.36 where he's talking to the Jews at Pentecost and he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has made him Lord and Christ. So it helps us understand Philippians 2.11. It says, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. So how do you respond if someone says, I get this a lot, and uh, people say, so Sean, how, describe God to me. And uh, I just quote scripture. I, well, but to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in him. I just cite scripture. Well, you can't, that's what the scripture says. You're asking me, I'm just citing scripture. There is but one God, the Father, okay? And then, so what do you say about Jesus? I cite the rest of that same scripture. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. How it all works out, I don't know. I don't know how that works out. But I'm sticking with how Paul chooses to describe the one God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and let everyone else be a liar. I'm going to cite what Paul says because he's the one who took the time to write it. I'm not going to cite what men have put in creeds. I'm going to cite what Paul says. So Paul says, I've not ceased giving thanks for you, making mention of your prayers, ready that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may, and what has Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give them? 
He tells us. Ready? He may give unto you, one, the spirit of wisdom, and two, I'm going to add the spirit there, but you don't have to, and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom from above and revelation in the knowledge of him. These things are connected to what Paul says next. So he says, I'm praying that he'll give you these things, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I want you to have wisdom and revelation that the eyes of your understanding will be illuminated, okay? Which will allow, the next line, that you may know, so he's giving us some steps here, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glory of the inheritance of the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his power. Verse 20, which he, God, wrought in Christ when he, God, raised him, Christ from the dead, set Christ at his own, God's right hand in heavenly places. And from here, Paul describes what God has done in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. And he says about his son, beginning at verse 21, who is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. I mean, that is an amazing set of scriptures that lines up in just eight verses Paul's prayer for the saints at Ephesus and everywhere else who might be reading it. It's really, so let's go back and work through these amazing passages Paul explains for us that my prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you, reader of scripture. I don't think what Paul prayed for those uh, believers at Ephesus in what he describes here is any different for us. I think it's the same. I, I, would, cha I would change that if Paul said, and my prayer to you is that you would see his coming approaching. I would say that is not for us. I would say that. If Paul wrote, I'm praying that you'll see his coming approaching, I'd say that, that was to them. But when he says, I'm praying to these Christians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give unto you the spirit of wisdom, and the revelation and the knowledge of him, now context tells me that's to any believer. I don't see why God, uh, who doesn't change, wouldn't want believers today or believers 2,000 years ago to have the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in knowledge of him, right? So in other words, Paul's praying for someone to comprehend the rest of he's, what God has intended for his children for those who are his. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Ask yourself, have you been received that from God? Have you received from God, Paul's prayer to them, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him? That's important stuff. Imagine that God bestows upon you God himself bestows upon you the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of or the revelation of a knowledge of him. 
Whew. I mean, so first we have to start off and ask, who's him? Is Paul saying that God will bestow upon you the spirit of wisdom and knowledge of Jesus? Or is he saying the knowledge of him, God? And to me, and I went through them quite a few times to try to make sure we had it right, I propose that the him is a knowledge of God himself. And that at verse 21, Paul begins to then write and speak of Christ. But right now, we're, he is talking about, I'm praying for you, saints, that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of revelation in him, God. Therefore, we're safe to say that the spirit of wisdom refers to being wise and understanding of the things of God, who his son came to reveal. Remember, Jesus came to reveal the invisible God. You, you see me, you've seen the Father. He came to reveal the invisible one and show him. Wisdom is defined by uh, people as knowledge applied. I agree with that definition of man. And Paul seems to be saying that he's praying that the saints would be blessed with an ability to take their knowledge that they've gotten and apply it uh, and rightly to their Christian life. If you have knowledge, but you can't apply it, then you're not a wise woman or a wise man. You are a fool because you're a fool because you know what the facts are, but you can't apply it, right? I'm a fool for eating deep fried tacos. My cardiologist says, that's not good for you. I'm not wise in the fact that I will eat deep fried tacos because my knowledge tells me they will clog up your, your arteries. But So if I was a wise person relative to that subject, I would say, yeah, I know they're bad for me, so therefore I'm not going to do it. And that's what we say about everything. If you're a wise person, you say you have the knowledge, but you're able to apply it, right? He also adds the line, the spirit of wisdom, after the spirit of wisdom, which is so intriguing to me. And Paul is also praying the spirit. It doesn't say that there. So I'm just going to say, and of revelation in the knowledge of him, which I see as God. He's praying that the saints there would have revelation in the knowledge of God, of knowing him. These two hopes Paul has, I'm praying, go hand in hand when he's praying with the saints that they would receive from God the, sp uh, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge. And, 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 and so therefore, he speaks to the wisdom rightly applied of the knowledge of God that they are getting by revelation. You're getting this by revelation. He uses that word, apocalypsis in the Greek. And um, it, that, that word, apocalypsis, you might be familiar with it. It comes from the root word apocalypto, which is, sounds familiar to you, right? Apocalypto, apocalypse, uh, which is the translation of the book of Revelation. Revelation, the book, a revelation of Jesus Christ is really the apocalypto of Jesus Christ. The Catholics call it the apocalypse. They don't call it revelation. Why the, why the different words? Just for clarity, but it's not called the book of Revelation. It's the apocalypse. And what does apocalypso mean? Uh, it means the disclosing of something that's been hidden. Jesus was going to be revealed. It wasn't known the time or day. The Apocalypto was describing what the time and day would be. And so we have the revelation, the disclosure of, the uncovering of 
Jesus being revealed the second time in the book of Revelation. So what he's saying is that you will receive an apocalypto of the knowledge of him. In your spirit, you're able to know him in a way revealed to you. It's, he's been uncovered and you have this intimate relation with, relationship with him. Remember when Jesus walked the earth, he said, and this is life eternal to know him, the only true and living God, and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Know them. That's why we get together on a Sunday and we study together. This isn't to do church. It's to know him, to have an apocalypso of the scripture and have our minds open to who he is and what he's about. And these verses are really good at it. So Paul prays the spirit of revelation, which probably means the Holy Spirit here. We're not talking about a bunch of different spirits. We're probably just talking about the Holy Spirit, which gives revelation and would help these believers have a knowledge of God. And a knowledge of God would be the opportunity to have knowledge applied, to apply what they've learned of God to their life, therefore the spirit of wisdom. Now, what's intriguing about this passage, and remember, it's believed that this was a circular epistle, is that Paul prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. They had the Old Testament, right? They had an Old Testament, and that was their scripture. And the spirit, in conjunction with that scripture, would be one means for Paul's prayer to come true. He's praying that they'll have the spirit of revelation given to them. And perhaps he's saying that you'll have that while you read the Old Testament. But the content of the New Testament, uh, which is rife with insight on the revelation of God, all sorts of stuff in the New Testament about who God is, it was not available to them then. So Paul actually is praying that those saints at that time would actually have revelation of God revealing himself to them in an apocalypso, in an uncovering of him by the Spirit, that God would give them, give them something they don't have, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It's a fascinating concept because um, if God... Paul is praying that he would do this. Okay, take it this way. So let's just take this little group uh, here. You guys at home and everybody here in the studio church. Let's say that Paul's prayer was to us. And he prays that God would give the spirit of revelation and of wisdom. And he gives it to persons 1, 3, and 7. But he, and, 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 and persons 5, 8, and 12 they don't get it. Maybe they, maybe they didn't receive it because they couldn't. Maybe they're not in tune with it, whatever. But 1, 8, and 7 get it. So 1, 8, and 7 have a revelation given them of the knowledge of God and an uncovering of the knowledge of God. Well, persons 2, 5, and 12 get mad because they haven't had the revelation. And so what do they do? They say, you're wrong. Paul is praying that the people would receive a revelation of the hidden God, the uncovering of him. And yet, we have people who obviously in the body aren't going to receive the same revelation because there are different spiritual gifts and people receive different ones. We can have someone who has a spiritual gift of prophecy and they might say something and the rest of us, because we don't have it, we would sort of attack them. 
The point I'm trying to get to here is God obviously does not grant every person equal giftings. And so if God himself grants somebody a spiritual gifting where they have knowledge of God, I think our job is to assess it and not attack it, not go overboard with ridicule of that. We do that because it doesn't fit our schema of who God is. But when someone else comes up with something, right here we have proof. Paul's praying for them to have a revelation of the knowledge of God in Apocalypse. There's no other way to get that. That means a revelation, you guys. It doesn't mean something else. It means a revelation. So in the face of this, I see more and more reason for faith and love to abide. Faith and love. It's reemphasized. Because we're, be, we're given a situation here where faith and love could be challenged in a body of believers by virtue of this setup of what he's praying for, if you, if you think about it. So additionally, we tend to dismiss revelation in the body today. And uh, I challenge that dismissal. Now, stay with me. Um, all of us receive revelations from God every day. A mother has the revelation to run to the school and check on her child. That's not in scripture. It doesn't say mothers should check on their children in third grade. But a mother senses from God the need to go and check on her child or, go, or do something at work. Or a man feels like he should do something special and he, he believes, this is God telling me. We have those experiences. And revelations are continual on earth today in the lives of Christians. But we're so resistant to those ideas at the same time. Oh, no, 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 there's, there's no revelation, right? And it's because people come up with their own revelation, maybe about God, and they say things, and so it's a little unsettling. And we, we in this state, know people who have had revelations or say they've had revelation, and it unsettles everything that is uh, set in stone as being known. So you got to be careful when it comes to the uncovering of things that um, are not substantiated in Scripture. If the mother said, you know, I'm having a revelation, I should go to the school and get my child, bring him home and kill him, you have a problem, right? If someone has a revelation and uncovering of the knowledge of God and says that he wears a pink wig on the throne then you want to say, well, what does Scripture say about what God wears on the throne, what he's like on the throne? And the, the Scripture says, well, he's light. That's all it says. We have nothing about a pink wig, so we use the word to balance out the revelations that we get and make sure that we're in harmony with what has been said. God doesn't contradict himself. He's not going to come up with a religion or revelations that are going to contradict what he's established firmly, right? So I'm just pointing that out, that while we do believe in revelation, Every individual Christian is responsible for fact-checking the revelations they get and the revelations other people claim to get, right? That's, that's our safeguard in understanding what is true. And I believe that God has given us this book of things that have been to help establish truth and decide what is right and not just... So when, if I just said uh, in a vacuum... We all receive revelation, which people like to say I do. Oh, yeah, you can have revelation, or, you know, just like Joseph Smith, right? That's not what I'm saying. 
but we do get revelation. We don't have to shut that off from our God. He's our Father. We're in communication. It's not just one way talking. He talks back. We don't have to mock that or, or consider that uh, evil, but just make sure it's in check with the information you get with what is written. So, uh, that being said, when God reveals something to us relative to our comprehending Scripture, this is another one. I think that's a spiritual gift. I think that's what Paul's talking about, the revelation of the knowledge of Him. And I think that happens when people are reading Scripture with the Spirit and God reveals line upon line, precept upon precept. That's not a Mormon song. That's in the Old Testament more stuff that he has for them. That is one of the beauties of being in relationship with God, is he wants to reveal himself for those who seek him, right? So uh, even if your revelation of him through scripture goes against uh, traditions, the traditions are the revelations of other men who said, I read the scripture and this is what it says to me. That's fine. It's worked for people. They embrace it. But when I read it, it says this, and if it can't be refuted by Scripture, it can be supported by Scripture. It's just as viable as anybody else's interpretation. And what needs to exist in the background is love and peace, you see? So if Scripture can support the Trinity, and it can, if it can support the Trinity, then someone who believes in the Trinity is a-okay with me. But if the Scripture can also support forms of modalism, it, uh, then then that's okay too. It's up to God to reveal which way is the right interpretation of the scripture. Anyway, assuming that God did or will bless them with the things that Paul has prayed for, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of knowledge of revelation in him, Paul now goes on to explain how if God gives them those things, he will give them these next five things. Ready? That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Just listen to those words that you will know what is the hope of God's calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he, God, raised him from the dead and set Christ at his own hand, right hand in heavenly places. That is some content. Uh, let's work through it. Paul prayed that God would give them those two things, spirit of revelation, spirit of knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, illuminated. We want to be illuminated Christians. We don't want to be in the dark. We want to see what God wants us to see. You have that right as an individual believer that God would illuminate your understanding and it would be enlightened. When Jesus came to earth, the objective of the Messiah in the Tanakh was to open the eyes, to open the hearts, to open the prison doors, to get the darkness out of people's lives, those who sit in darkness, to of the blind. And so apparently, tied to Paul's prayer request, God bestows the spirit of wisdom and revelation as a means to facilitate this. He got, Paul's prayed for this for them so that they can see and have wisdom and the revelation of God. 
This is the hope for all people who stumble in the dark and have their spiritual understanding obscured to have eyes, of the eyes of their understanding. There's a Christian song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. I, I've heard it sung. And that's what we're talking about here. The eyes of our heart, the eyes of our understanding opened by God, illuminated. And most teachers experience uh, the moment when they're teaching a concept to kids, maybe math or something, that's difficult. And, you know, they can see kids don't get it. You can see in a person. And then we say the phrases, and then we, the teachers say, and we saw the light go on. And their eyes become illuminated. They're like, oh, I understand. We see, you see that with your children, right? And that's what we're talking about. Compre- it's the same thing with spiritual things. Comprehending spiritual subjects, the same thing. You're in darkness until the light goes on. That's revelation. By the Spirit, through the Word, the light is going on. And that is a fantastic gift in a world of darkness that obscures, oh my gosh, I turn, I listened to the radio driving back from California yesterday and just the, the, the philosophy, I usually don't have time to do that, the philosophies and the ways of the world and the darkness and the obscurity and the opinions that people spouse as good and virtuous and it's just this darkness swirling around and when you have the light come on, that is what God is doing. He's giving you that illumination. So often when people say, and they do this through emails and stuff, you know, how do I know that I've been born again? How do I know? And, I, and the way I explain it often is that they have the eyes of their uh, mind open up to something they've never seen before that makes more sense to them. They're moving along. They've never known something. They've been in, in some obscure belief. And then they see for the first time. Of course, it's not with our physical eyes, though nature does look different but you begin to have that understanding. That's what Paul is praying, that the eyes of their understanding and the knowledge of God would come forth. So this is a direct result of all that, their capacity to see. And when this occurs, we are led to reading why Paul would love for everyone there to have their eyes opened. That you may know what is the hope of God's calling. That's interesting. God has a hope in calling you. I don't see a predestination there. I see a hope in his calling you. That, that means two-way street to me. God, that, there, that you may know, Paul says, when your eyes are enlightened, the hope of his calling. What's the hope of God's calling? Well, scripture plainly says for you to become a son and daughter. That's the hope. I sent my son to take care of the sin of this world. You'll look to him. You'll have faith. Your eyes will be enlightened and you'll come to know what's the hope of my calling you. I think that's just beautiful. And in addition to that calling, this folds right in what he says next to the hope of that calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? His hope is that anyone who believes will become his sons and daughters, his children, Come into the family of God. And the next one says, and you'll know what the riches of his glory in the inheritance you'll get as a saint. I'm the executor over my parents' estate. I have uh, five living siblings, uh, four living siblings. One's passed away, but they're included in it. And all of them are interested in what's going to be their inheritance from my parents. My parents are getting old. When they die, when we liquidate, when we do this, who's going to get what? 
Well, here, Paul tells us the same thing. When your eyes are open because you've been given the wisdom and the revelation, you will know what is the hope of his calling for you. And then he says, and then in hand in hand with that calling of becoming sons and daughters, what are the riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints? He is promising here an inheritance of glory to those who are sons and daughters. Now, I believe, and people don't necessarily agree with me, you don't have to, I believe that God has reconciled the world to himself. But those two passages are not speaking to the world of unbelievers. These passages are speaking to the hope that God has in reconciling and calling and what is the riches of glory of an inheritance he's going to give to those who were faithful. That is night and day from being reconciled. This is an amazing passage to believers that we aren't just believing and going through this world to be part of a whole heavenly uh, group of everybody. Hey, Charlie Manson. Hey, this. Hey, guys, you didn't care. No, 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 no. Paul says right here that you will know, I pray that when your eyes are open, you will know the hope of, your, of God's calling for you and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is for the saints. Man, that is powerful. And that's, that's how we walk in faith. Because you know what? We're really distrusting that this is going to be the case. We don't know it. We hope it's that. Sometimes I wonder if it's that. And God loves, as Hebrews says, those who is, have faith in his promises. So... God has a hope in calling people, apparently so. That's what it says. And the fulfillment of that hope are the an inheritance of his glory. Um, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints? There are actually a laundry list of things the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him would bring. And the list includes, let me quickly say that you'll know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe. This is another thing that he's doing according to the working of his mighty power. And we'll finish that line in a second. Because of the words used here, it's easy to think that all of us, all of these things are translating to the here and now. And perhaps they do. The power that what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe. And that it means we're going to be powerful on this earth and we're going to be, you know, uh, business icons and we're going to be wealth icons and we're going to be powerful. That's not what I think it means. When God is giving his power to us word, I think it translates into something different. Um, Paul is describing, I think, spiritual powers in, in ability to overcome this world, and which will be manifest here in our flesh for sure, but they don't, won't be fully known until we receive the inheritance of glory uh, then. And that is why such things can only be known by and through the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. The second thing listed also helps us to see that Paul is speaking of a future inheritance, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, and the inheritance of the saints. 
So we know it's in the future. The inheritance of the saints comes later for believers. I happen to believe that Paul is talking about the fact that uh, the hope and the glory that we're waiting for and the power he is in us, toward us, is all about bringing us to the place of receiving all of those things. That we're in the process of going through this now in order to receive. And that takes faith. You have to really believe that at the end of the race, there is a reward to be a Christian and follow this through. And the other people who don't, they just say, I just don't believe it. So I don't think God's gonna be giving any special awards to anybody, but scripture says differently for those who are his. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Initially, this translation is a little cumbersome. So again, just because we're learning, I'm gonna read through 18 through 20 that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, which, which, and now at that point he shifts to Christ. He wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. So if you take that last part, you can see what Paul's talking about that the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe is the power that God used when he raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. That is the power toward us, in us, that he is using. It's the same power he raised Christ up from the dead and set him at his right hand side. That is what Paul is saying the hope of God is in every single who follows him to do the same thing, not necessarily at his right-hand side, but to bring them up by that power to new life. That's the power. So in my life, I've had a very limited uh, application or scope to miracles and things, as people call miracles. I haven't seen too many of those, etc. But I can absolutely, as many of you can, I'm not unusual, say that I have experienced the power of God in me as a believer and that it is the same power that God used to raise his son up because I was dead in sin. I was dead in my flesh, nothing I could do. And the power of God raised me up. So this, these passages ring true in my life as a believer that I have been raised up and given the power to walk forward when I had none on my own. And that's what he did with Christ. He was dead in the grave. Christ raised him. God raised him up and set him at the right hand of of himself, right? A place of power. So I can't deny that. And I can't deny many other things that he's done. I don't want to, you know, limit, box him into that. He's he's blessed us in terms of being able to survive and go like out of the blue stuff just to be able to do things. And I've seen that. I've also seen the work of his mighty power in giving new life to my family. Years ago, we had my oldest daughter. She's back in the room taking care of kids right now. That oldest daughter came on our show and she was a hardened atheist living in New York City, making money playing music in the subways. She didn't, she thought God was a joke. She thought he was a a laugh. There was no, in my mind, there was no hope for that kid. In fact, I told my wife, if Mallory comes around, I will see a miracle in my life. She was so hardcore. 
And in time and in love, that spirit of God came into her and raised her up to new life. That's what we're looking for in people who believe. But people who don't believe, we're hoping they'll believe first, right? And get all these things that Paul is talking about. So when he raised Christ from the dead, that's when he, that, so he says, which is the seeding power of us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. A couple of things here. When the King James says, um, which he wrought in Christ, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. You can change that to as seen in rather than according. According to us has a connection that's different than as seen in, but it means the same thing. So read it. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, which is seen in the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. That is completely acceptable relative to the uh, grammar, and it, it helps clarify. Therefore, the meaning is that it is the same power he's working in us that he worked in his own son. Um, the power to raise a sinner to new life and is the same power to resurrect somebody from the dead and carnal human beings and making sons and daughters of them who that's his hope and to bring them in into this inheritance of power and light uh, at, the, at the right hand, so to speak, not each of us, but just collectively as his family. We'll understand this better and what Paul is alluding to when we get to chapter two. I just wanna read the first 10 verses because they weren't separated by a chapter and we'll wrap it up. Paul goes, and you has he quickened, that means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. This is chapter two, verse one. Wherein time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. That was all of us. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others are. We were all there. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace you were saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So now we're talking about that sitting again in heavenly places. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness through us toward Christ. Excuse me, kindness toward us through Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ to good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We're gonna cover those passages uh, next week. And uh, Paul has taken us to the point where he's described his hope for the saints. And he's moved us through just some of the most beautiful um, prose on what God is doing in those who choose to believe. All right, 
Questions, comments? Thanks. All right, so you didn't get to the head part because this has been my focus lately. When, you, when, when we get down to the, that, that Christ is the head over all things in the church. Okay, so I've been studying this head thing. And uh, in Hebrew, they use roth. And anytime, anytime they change it to the Greek where it means leader, military, in charge, you know, they use this word archon. But in, in other cases, when they're talking about it as source, and this is where this word is, it's, I don't know, I, I'll, I don't know how you say it, kephale, kephale, whatever, that's what that means. Because we're in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they really, they, these guys believed in gods and goddesses. And, and there's even a Corinthian, Corinthian helmet that's used with Athena. And the idea of Athena, she was born out of the head of Zeus, you know. So when it's used in this term, because this is what these people could understand, was it's the source of, that Christ is the source of all this stuff. So when head is used, like in 1 Corinthians 11 and whatnot, you know, God is the head of Christ and man is the head of woman. It's talking about source, you know, that he is our actual source. Not and the so, leader. Yeah, not the leader as as we look at it, because that's kind of been my, you know, like I just talked to you earlier, uh, where where I am in my study is, is because uh, I've struggled with that, you know, man is the leader of women, you know, that's, I haven't liked that, you know, it's what bugged me about Mormonism. And so, um, in my study, I get to find out. So, cause you know, he's in Ephesus. I mean, the whole idea of him being brought before Felix and all that was, he was talking about this one God and, and the guys that created all these things unto the goddess Diana, which is really Artemis is Greek. Cause you know, they, were the Greeks and now they're Romans. So the Roman word is Diana. They they were worshiping her. You know, they were worshiping this Diana. And so um, I can't remember. I was just saying. You're passionate about that. I am. I am just about how women fit into all of this and that how we don't understand. Because when I was first reading and I would, I would go to these places and they would always talk about, you know, males are supposed to be the leaders and you know and then like I say I watched your thing with John DeLynn that I had never seen before and I went no wonder I was led here you know because you almost exactly said all these things that I haven't heard you say which is where I've come to in my study along this so I just wanted to say thank you thank you for for all the <laughs> we're going to get to chapter five eventually okay I we are going to talk about chapter five okay we'll bring you back up and you just preach it sister <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I got it. <laughs> That's awesome. Anybody else? All right. Uh, next week after milk, heart in the parking lot, open water baptisms for those of you here, those at home. And uh, what we do is we have a hot dog food uh, gathering and it's we do it once a year. It's very casual. If the, and I said, I've said this before, but we've had families show up that never attended here. They do the baptism thing together. They never show up again. So you're welcome to do that. We don't care. It's a non-denominational, open water. If you choose to be baptized, you can be baptized by yourself, by me, by anybody else who you want. Uh, and you can do it in the way you want. Uh, and we do that because there's division on the ways that are, are, you're supposed to do it. 
We have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have in the name of Jesus only. We have by immersion. We have by sprinkling. We have by splashing. You can choose. We'll just, you just pick it up and we'll do it. And it's all in faith toward God, how you want to do it. So we invite you to come. And if you don't get baptized, that's fine. You don't have to. You can come and just eat and, uh, and join us for the hot dog, Heart in the Parking Lot, September 1st, 1130 here at campus. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'll open up our hearts. The last thing we need is, is, uh, is showing authority over each other because some scripture mentions it uh, and, and like Karen was talking about. And just help this, this epistle to open us up to what uh, Paul is trying to convey. And that is faith and love, faith and love. And how in Christ Jesus, all are one. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism and uh, one God, and, and we are seeking to be in harmony with your, your spirit, your wisdom, to know what is right and to avoid that which is uh, unpleasant to your eyes and ears. We pray that your spirit will move us, help us to be humble and, and contrite before uh, each other and before our neighbors, and help us to share this good news, this great news with the world, and to help people know that that belief pleases you. And uh, they have that opportunity to take advantage of that reconciliation wrought on by, uh, for the world. Um, we just pray for those who are on the list. We pray for Gaylene. She has floaters in her left eye. And those who are suffering from depression, pray for our brother Eric, who's not here with us today, and, and, and Patrick and their struggles in life. We uh, pray for um, Dave and Nancy Bontempo who are, uh, she's struggling with uh, advanced stage cancer and that you'll help them. And uh, anybody else, Lord, who isn't on this list, who's struggling with their marriage, with children or grandchildren, their parents, neighbors, struggling with the faith, who are having difficulty believing, who are having a, a hard time in relationships and feel uh, lonely or outcast or anything that we're having trouble with, Lord, our mental state, our finances, our health. These things plague us here on this earth, Lord, but make yourself known. Show us that you're there and let us walk in this faith and in this love. We pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.